Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. In this episode, join us for a discussion on staffing in nursing homes with the Director of Public Policy at Consumer Voice, Robin Grant, and David Brebda, a partner of the Senior Justice Law Firm. They will discuss how complex facility practices and resource allocation, combined with a lack of minimum staffing standards, put residents at risk for poor care, as well as recommendations for addressing these problems. Hi, welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. I am Lori Smetanka. I'm the Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, and we are just thrilled that you're listening with us today. Today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is focused on what we're calling untangling the nursing home staffing and finance cases, making sense of a complex web in the push for better care for residents of long-term care facilities. We're talking about how long-term care staffing and how it's not just the resident acuity that affects the staffing numbers, but it's also based on what minimum standards exist or do not exist, and importantly, how a facility allocates its resources and revenues to get to adequate staffing. All of these things have an impact on the quality of care that residents receive and on their outcomes. Joining me today is our Director of Public Policy and Advocacy, Robin Grant, who recently spearheaded a recent report that we issued looking at state minimum staffing requirements for nursing homes. So glad to have you here with us today, Robin. And also joining us today to help us untangle some of these complexities around staffing and financing is our special guest, David Brevta, who's a partner with the Senior Justice Law Firm. He is a trial attorney where he focuses on nursing home negligence and medical malpractice litigation, fighting for the rights of injured clients and their families. He received his law degree from New York University. He has a bachelor's and master's degrees in accounting and has earned a master of laws in taxation. David is well-versed in long-term care staffing and corporate structuring and tax issues. And David, we're delighted to have you with us today as well. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate it. Well, David, tell us a little bit about your work and that of your firm as we get started so um, folks get a better sense of what it is that you're doing. Sure. Um, I I think what's really special about Senior Justice Law Firm is the fact that we specialize. Uh, We only do nursing home assisted living facility and occasional medical malpractice if it touches on the elderly, for example, a bed sore at a hospital. But really, 90% of my cases are an ALF or a nursing home. We also do some home health work as well. But that's really what our firm focuses on, because what we found is this is such a unique area of law. The fact patterns are so different from a slip and fall at a Walmart or a car accident or something like that, that the the repetition, the continued, um, you know, focus on it allows us to really excel in these cases. And they can be quite difficult. Uh, They can. They're very complex. There's a lot of what the defense would call comorbidities. I call risk factors. But again, um, there's a lot of things that affect these underlying cases that you have to have a background knowledge in. And I think our repeated focus on this helps us represent our clients as best as possible. Sure, I think that's true. And you know, I think your unique background in tax law and accounting must give you a greater understanding of how the facility's numbers and decision-making around how they put their resources really affects the quality of care that they provide. Most definitely. And I think the, the big head-scratching moment was when I first saw these things and I go, why are they doing this? What is the point here mm-hmm. from a business sense? And if these numbers that they're saying are true, they're not making a lot of money. Why are they spending this time and effort doing this? So it became readily apparent right away that they were lying uh-huh. and they were obfuscating and they were doing things 
that were not representat- uh, representations of the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that became readily apparent from the start for me. And I think that's a big part of um, what we're even hearing about right now as we're looking at proposals to incorporate minimum staffing standards, you know, nationally, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the things we hear a lot from the industry is they can't afford it, that rates aren't sufficient, um, that they don't have the resources to provide the staffing. And, and, you know, I think that leads into the complex web that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And we hear that all the time. We'll be, um, you know, at a mediation or something, they say, you know, David, we're so sorry, but, you know, because of COVID, we don't have any money. We can't settle. And I know that's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just know it's not true because we see at the same time that these facilities are getting bought for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it's bought by uh, private equity companies who are not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. Mm-hmm. They're doing it because it's a profit seeking opportunity. Mm-hmm. So there is money to be made and they are making it. So I'm with you 110%. I hear that same excuse over and over again. And we'll get to that. I don't want to jump the gun on all of this, but I agree with 100%. So um, what we know, David, is that research has indicated that a key factor in the provision of care is the availability of adequate staff, both in terms of numbers of staff, the right mix of professional, you know, licensed staff nurses, registered nurses, LPNs, um, as well as um, the caregivers that are certified nurse aides, for example, um, that they're properly trained and supervised. I'm sure you find that to be true in your work in cases. And can you talk a little bit about that has impacted the work that you do as well? Oh, of course. I think that is the, the, the narrative that binds every single one of my cases together, whether it's a bed sore, whether it's a fall, whether it's infections, whether it's even awful things that I see, unfortunately, like sexual assault. Uh They all can be tied back to understaffing. Uh, The lack of staff creates problems. People go to these facilities because they need assistance. That's why they're there. They need oversight. They need help. Whether it's physical or mental or both, they have issues. And when you cut staff, they don't have the ability to document appropriately. They don't have the ability to reassess their, um, their, their procedures appropriately. And what you see happen is the same injuries over and over again, falls bad sores, infections over and over and over again. So we see um, as we get into the, you know, financial structure and staffing of these facilities that it's no surprise the chains that are the repeat offenders, we get a lot more cases from, Uh, you know, we see, and I'm not going to mention any names uh, because I I think that would be inappropriate on this, but sure. You know, not, I'm not suing all nursing homes evenly. I'm not suing all assisted living facilities evenly. There are certain players that purposely do it worse than others. And I'm not saying all of them are bad, but a lot of them are doing bad things. But there are some that are so egregious with their staffing levels that it seems like I have a new case against them every week. And it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Wow. Well, that kind of, you know, feeds into the fact of why we push for staffing standards so heavily, right? You know, because there's no minimum federal staffing standard at this point. That's something we've been advocating for. And uh, Robin, as I mentioned, uh, spearheaded a report that we recently released on state staffing standards and and their adequacy. Robin, can you just talk about that for a minute? Absolutely. Um, Well, we've been really concerned for decades um, that the uh, federal requirements are are not adequate. Um, There is no minimum staffing standard. The requirements, as as you know, just call for sufficient staffing. So um, that is incredibly vague and ambiguous. Um, 
which means there is no floor <laughs> below which a nursing home cannot go. So there, because there's no baseline, that really leaves it up to the facility. Um, and we hear um, daily from residents um, and family members about the impact that that has on residents and devastating harm um, to residents. Um, so in the absence of strong federal regulations, we, um, it's, it's really um, yeah, important to look to the states I mean, because they, um, state regulations um, can um, impact and, and, and uh, improve the quality of care if they're, if they're strong enough. And so um, we wanted to see what the state regulations looked like. And um, so we conducted a study and we looked at all the, all the states and we were um, incredibly disturbed to find out that sadly the state standards are woefully inadequate also. Um, Lori talked about some, um, some research and, and um, how the research shows that there's a really you know, strong connection between higher staffing levels and, and better quality of care. One of those studies is from, uh, is the federal government's own study that showed that um, you need at least uh, 4.1 hours per resident per day of, of nursing staff, so that's aides and, and nurses, to just prevent um, poor outcomes happening to residents. Um, so that is a minimum staffing standard. Um, and when we looked at the states, only DC, only DC had um, that 4.1. They actually had a little bit higher. Um, no other, other state had it. Um, and in fact, um, uh, more than half of the states um, required less than uh, 3.5 hours per day um, of, of, of nursing care per resident. And so um, we were so concerned to see that. Um, so there is no, no safety net in the states, right? Um, we can't look to the states um, at this point to, to provide those adequate protections and staffing to, to residents. And so that makes the need for a federal minimum staffing standard um, so important. We have to, we have to, we have to look there. Um, and that's um, in order to address this. Yeah, thanks, Robin. And, you know, I think uh, what we saw, you know, even over this past year as the nursing home industry has um, been saying that, again, they don't have enough staff, they don't have, they can't find people to be working. Some of the things that states have done have been either to suspend their minimum standards or like your own Florida, David, um, which is one of the ways we got to you, right? I'm not taking we, credit for this, by the way. <laughs> so we started talking about it, actually put into legislation, they rolled back their standard um, from 2.5 to 2.0 for, for, for CNAs, which just dumbfounded us. And uh, so, you know, based on the work that you've been doing, like, what do you think this is going to mean for residents? And, and what do you see? What do you think about this? It's going to be awful. And, and I want to thank, uh, you know, Robin for doing what she's doing. And I, I agree with her 110 uh, percent. National standards need to be put into place. And, and I can tell you from a personal reason why that is, because when we have deflated state minimums, and a federal guidance that says staff to acuity, but doesn't give specifics, a lot of judges will naturally assume that the floor is the minimum and that's it. And they will point to those and say, look, we did it. Here's the law. Right. We did it. And that's the equivalent of saying, I'm not speeding or I'm not driving dangerously because it's 45 and I'm going 45, but I'm swerving in and out of the lanes drunk. 
That's not safe driving. I don't care that you're going 45. There's more to it than that. And I think that, um, you know, that there are internally, because, you know, there's a really niche group of plaintiff's attorneys that focus on nursing home abuse. There are some people that are against a federal uh, mandatory minimum because they're afraid it'll be set too low and it'll like it'll undercut their argument for understaffing. But I'm with you all the way, Robin. I think it's got to be there. I think we see on a daily basis when we deal with judges, not all of them, but they're busy. They're not used to nursing home claims. They're very different uh, than any other type of claim. And they just go, well, they match the state rules. They, they actually exceeded them. How can we say it's understaffing? It's like, no, your honor, that is nothing. That is made up. Now, if they go below that, that's insane. But what they do in Florida is they find that number and they just hit it. They uh-huh. literally one centimeter above hit it. I've only seen a few times where someone's gone below that. Wow. So clearly negligent, right? So they just set it to that level. And, and, and you see that there's, you know, barely anyone, a skeleton staff on the floor. We see, um, you know, all this matters. So if you're asking me what I think is going to happen with these changes, more people are going to die. Uh-huh. People are going to get sick. More people are going to get bad sores. More people are going to break their femurs from preventable falls. But beyond all that, I don't want to make it seem that it's just the catastrophic falls that are catastrophic injuries that are going to really happen. Everyone's going to get poor care. Right. Even for the people that are there for rehab for 100 days and get out, they're going to have a miserable time. They're going to be scared. They're going to be disrespected. They're going to be treated in an unethical fashion. And it's not because the individual CNAs don't want to try to do better. Uh-huh. It's because they physically cannot, you know? Absolutely. So One of the oh, things sorry. we... Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Robin. I was going to say, um, we have heard um, really horrendous stories about the um, workload of CNAs. I mean, CNAs tell us, and residents tell us as well. You know, last night, there was one aide for 30 residents, I mean, just absolutely by himself or, or herself. And it's just not humanly possible. It's mm-hmm. just not possible. And we know that AIDS are, are um, vast majority are working as hard as they can and they care. And it's really hard for them to leave at the end of the day, knowing that they couldn't care for people the way they wanted to. It's, yeah. it, it is heartbreaking. Cause I, again, I do, I depose these people, right. And I'm talking to them directly and I'm looking through their notations, which are awful because they don't have time to notate it correctly. And the treatment's inconsistent. And on this day, they're an extensive assist with ambulating. And on this day, they're independent, independent because they don't have time. They're just marking stuff off. And it's heartbreaking to see in their eyes because they know that they're not doing a good job. And it's not them. It's the system. And right. not to jump to the corporate stuff, but we hear over and over again, you know, especially when it's an ex-employee that doesn't have to play nice during a depot. They go, oh, yeah, I complain about this every day to the administrator. Well, wow. what did they say? Corporate won't let us have more. That's the, that's the line. And I feel bad for the administrators too, because they work their whole lives to be running this place to help out. And then they get there, they get to Everest of, of what their career can be. And they find out they have no autonomy. Uh-huh. They have no choice in the matter. And they're going to be uh, you know, a straw man to take the, the, the blame for the injuries that are going to occur. They're literally, their job is to, be, to take the hits, right? It's just terrible. Well, and, you know, that's a that's a really good, great point that you raise because, um, you know, so much of the blame that's put on it is at the facility level when they're not always the ones making the decisions, right? You know, I, I once had a, a, I was talking to a family council and 
was talking about the importance of adequate staffing and, you know, talk through what they could do if they had concerns about staffing levels and how they could complain about it or, you know, file complaints. And they said, oh, this is a X company facility. They don't staff at higher levels. They staff, they have a certain staffing level that they keep. So, you know, I, I think, you know, so much of the decision-making is coming from the corporate offices in terms of what happens in those facilities. Do you see that in your cases? Absolutely. And, and what's frustrating is, they're taught to not say that, right? That's a battle. It's a battle that we fight every single case because in the beginning, magically, oh, they're just passive investors. They have no involvement. But years later, we magically have these emails. We have these notes from meetings where they're saying, this is the budget. This is what. This is how much you could spend on labor. This is how much you can spend on new equipment. Because of course it is. What, what else would they be doing? All they care about is the profit, right? So they and this is one of the things that I always think back from my prior experience, you know, working in capital markets um, in a past job, in a past life, you could say, when you look at a business, right, you look at income and expense. So in this situation, in this area, income's pretty set by Medicare, right? You're getting Medicare and Medicaid mostly or Advantage plans. So your, your stream is steady. So what can you do to make more money? The only thing you can do is cut costs, right? Mm-hmm. And you ask any administrator in a deposition, what's your number one cost in the budget every year? Labor. That's what it is. It's that simple, right? right. Now, and we're going to talk about this, and I know you mentioned it before, but they always cry poor. What I would say is, okay, if that's true, show us. Uh-huh. Don't obfuscate there. If, the, if this whole industry is plagued by small margins and terrible situations, great. Let's, let's all open up our pocketbooks, open up our, you know, financial statements and show what are you guys really making uh-huh. and who are you paying? Are these all related parties? What are they making? What's the margin on the therapy contract that you happen to have an ownership interest in? What's the margin on the, you know, the, the land that you're leasing to yourself through a holding company. Right. I think that they don't want to show us that because they know they're making a lot of money and right. they get the dual, dual benefit of crying poor at the facility level. And if we are unable to pierce that and go to the top, even if we are able to get justice for a family, they can just hold up their hands and say, we're bankrupt. Right. So they get to get away with it. It serves the dual purpose of, you know, convincing the public that they're poor. And then also giving them insulation from civil liability for a a, a problem they created themselves. And so talk about that a little bit more, David, because that's one of the things we hear a lot about, you know, the, the ownership structure and how convoluted it is that it's so difficult to kind of figure out who ultimately is responsible for which part of the business that is, you know, being put into place. What yeah. do you see with that? Oh, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly complex. And again, I, I used to work in capital markets. I would see organizational structures that were 500 pages long. They were crazy. Well, that's what this has become. That It didn't used to be like this. That is what it is now. Uh-huh. And the reason why is strictly for this, you know, for civil liability protection, for bankruptcy protection, there is no business purpose. One of my favorite discovery requests I send out when I file suit on a claim is I say, what's the business purpose of this entity? And they object. They don't want to say it because they can't because there is none because it's some holding company, right? Uh-huh. I can see in Florida, you can see the licensee, the one who holds the license in one level above that. That's all you get. And so who's that guy and who's above that guy and who's Uh above that guy. And are there any contracts between them? Are there any articles of incorporation? Because we see, and I'm, I'm in a case right now that's really close to trial that 
this is the whole argument. There's no question they screwed up. They've independently told us, yep, you have a great case, but good luck collecting. We're just going to declare bankruptcy. So the whole thing is, can we get the corporate folks on board for this injury, right? And it's so funny because they have a chain and they have, we finally got by court order, they didn't want to give it to us, the articles of incorporation. And every single entity above the entity below it, the person that controls that entity has full power to fire anyone on the below entity. So basically it's a stream down of one person can fire everybody and can do everything. Wow. It is the same company, but they purposely took out a $50,000 depleting policy on the facility. And the facility itself is more or less going to be bankrupt because whenever they take money in, they suck it out up. It literally is in the articles of incorporation that the money goes directly up. So they would say, we don't have money. We have a $50,000 policy and we've already spent 30,000 defending it. You can have the 20. Wow. Yeah. Later. And that's just ridiculous. And, and the sad truth is in Florida, that happens a lot. It yeah. happens a lot. It's just, it's surreal. And, and not to kind of keep going on this, but in Florida to get financial discovery, to even get to see the documents, you have to be able to plead punitive damages. Huh. And that's a real issue because that's a higher standard. It's kind of a chicken and egg type situation, right? You, you, you need to see the stuff to show it's punitive, but you can't see it until you show it's punitive. Mm-hmm. So it, it's an uphill battle. I'm not, I, I don't want to blow it and say we get this every time. We don't. Um, we're lucky in this situation that we have it and we can show it, but it's a battle every single time. And, you know, the defense council knows that's what they need to do. They need to hide that. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. And I think people don't always understand that, um, that there are these related party transactions, that it's sometimes the same owner of, you know, like the three levels up owns the related entities. Somebody owns the land, but it's either a different company name with the same, the same owners, the same people own all of these different things, but they, they're operating under different company names or they might be related somehow or, you know, in some fashion. Um, so they're really paying themselves with all of these other, you know, entities that they put into place. One of my favorites that I've been seeing a lot is nonprofits that, you know, they, they really masquerade how nonprofit they are. So everyone thinks that they're great people. And we find out through discovery, depositions, et cetera, that those nonprofits happen to own a lot of related parties and they overpay themselves. So they get to show on their 990 tax return, which is a nonprofit tax return. Here's our income. Here's our expenses. Look, we lost $5,000 this year. You know, we didn't even make money. Huh. And, and, and for a judge that doesn't understand this, they go, yeah, then what are you on about, David? Uh-huh. It's like, no, I need to see all of those contracts. And I need to see who signed on behalf of both parties, because I kid you not, we'll see contracts where the same person signs wow. for both. And it's like, okay, who negotiated there? Who, who, are, who are you looking after in this deal? Is it just you? Because that's what it looks like, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very sad. And it's sad that in this, you know, convoluted business profit-seeking, you know, thing, they lose sight of the fact that the people that are going to get injured are our parents, are our veterans. These are human beings that are, it's not a shoe company. It's not, you know, making cars. These are human Mm -hmm. beings that are getting thrown around for a little extra profit. It's, it's very, very disturbing. It really is. We regularly get residents that we talk to who can tell us they always know when the facility has been sold or there's been a change of management because not only does you know the turnover, particularly at the administrative level, usually increase, but um, 
they see the immediate impact on the uh, level of services and the supplies that are available. So immediately where there might have been three aides on a wing or a floor, there's now two. Um, and so that means that they're waiting longer for help. They're not getting showered as frequently. They're not getting out of bed when they need to, you know, all of those things. Um, but they also tell us that um, the supplies decrease. So there's fewer towels and uh, bandages and sheets. So they're never available when they need it. And then the food quality sinks to where it's really inedible. Um, mm -hmm. Those are some main things that the residents themselves tell us. And I think that's important to highlight because I get so lost in the major injuries like we talked about, because that's all I can work with, but none of that should be okay either. Right. They're human beings, they should be treated with dignity. You shouldn't have to wait for a towel. I, I hear a lot of times that uh, clothing gets mixed up in these places. Mm -hmm. when they get understaffed because they just don't have time. They throw it in one massive commercial grade washer and dryer. And of course that's not, I can't really sue for that. But yeah, I mean, that's that's so undignified, um, especially I know a lot of my clients will say, you know, my mom would wear the nicest dresses all the time. She was so focused on being so presentable. And then they put her in there and she's treated like a dog. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I hope your listeners are, are realizing is that it, this affects everyone. Mm -hmm. This is not just a, the, the one out of 10 person that has a, a very traumatic injury. Every single resident there gets affected by this and, and a rising tide lifts all boats. Everyone will be better off if, like Robin said, we have mandatory minimums, really, because that would in ensure that people, when they hit a call bell, get a response in 15 minutes. Uh, it's almost like I don't even have to ask my clients at this point. Was there a delay in getting a call bell? David, you won't believe it. They didn't come for an hour. I do believe it, unfortunately, because I hear it every single day, right? It's just... It, it makes me sad because, again, it's just such a ubiquitous problem at these places. We do find it absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it, I heard just recently from a resident who said just the anxiety of, and stress of waking up in the morning, not knowing if there was going to be somebody there to help her get out of bed, to help her get, you know, to eat, whether there'd be someone later in the day, if she's in, in a wheelchair, to help her back to bed, if she was going to have to stay there for hours. So throughout the day, there was this incredible worry and stress about was there going to be somebody there to provide her just even the most basic care. Nobody should have to worry about that. I, I agree. And I think that's a good segue to, you know, because I think when I hear that narrative, when families put a loved one with onset dementia and assist, an assisted living or a memory care unit where it's that initial stage and they're not fully there. And that's exactly the type of fear and anxiety they deal with on a daily basis. And I know we've talked a lot about nursing homes, but gosh, assisted livings are sometimes even crazier because there's yeah, just the same is true. Those, you know? And there's less standards there. So yeah. They, they sell, because my clients will tell me, oh, they promised me we're going to have someone with mom every day. There's going to be 24 hour oversight. We've got eyes on her all the time. And then we bring a lawsuit and they go, well, here's the Florida rules, chapter 429, that says we don't need to do anything. It's like a hotel. And it's, that's not what you were telling them. And, 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 you know, kind of going back to the minimum staffing standards, my, my dream would be to have legislation that covers ALFs too. Uh -huh. to really streamline that as well, because that, that's a, a huge, I'm sure you guys know, it's a huge growth um, in, in the system. Yep. Because look, rightfully so, a lot of people don't want to be in nursing homes. It's not fun. And so they build these massive, beautiful looking buildings. They charge 
$9,000 a month. I mean, yeah. absurd numbers. And, and I'm talking in Florida, at least places that are not expensive, put it that way. They're in the middle of nowhere. And I'm not in any way besmirching, you know, any area that's not an urban area, but these are not high expensive real estate areas and they are just printing money. And then exactly that the falls happen, the bed source happen. They go, well, we're an ALF. We couldn't do it. You knew what you were getting into. We snuck one page in the admissions agreement saying falls are not preventable at ALS. So you buy it. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. One of the things we, uh, our organization has talked about for a long time is what we call the high cost of poor care, where, mm-hmm. you know, when, um, you know, when you're not putting the money and resources into the staff and into ensuring that people are having good outcomes initially, that that leads to bad outcomes. And that ultimately is more expensive for our system. It might not be in the same bucket, like in, in Medicaid, for example, but, you know, you send the person to the hospital and they need a lot more treatment, then they come back on rehab. And, you know, it's just kind of this cyclical thing that ends up costing so much more money than if they had just initially provided good care to that person um, right away. Do you see much of that in, in what you're doing? Of course. Uh, and, and I agree with you. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure for sure. And we see that a lot in infection cases. I would say that's where I see it the most. When you see clear signs of an infection, you, you see pain with urination or discolored, you know, urine, it, it, you know, that type of thing that should trigger, let's do a UTI test and they let it sit for two weeks and then they die mm-hmm. or then they need severe, you know, IV antibiotic treatments for, for months. You know, those are things that are, are, if you catch it early, you can handle bed sores as well. If you see a stage one where it's red, but it's, you know, it, it's non-blanchable redness that should be like, Hey guys, we need to change what we're doing. And they don't. They just go, eh, well, whatever. And then all of a sudden it's a cavernous stage four where you can see the spine, then it's too late, right? So I think that that is a classic in looking at it from a macro level, which I appreciate you guys do. It's important to think about how that affects the cost. Cause again, it's taxpayer money, right? It would make sense. And it intuitively does make sense uh, to provide better care to save money on the more severe treatments, hundred percent. So, you know, we, as we mentioned a couple of times here, you know, we've been advocating for minimum staffing standards, having a baseline below which you can't go. And, you know, we think that would make a huge difference, but what else do you think, you know, would make a difference um, in terms of holding these facilities accountable for using the resources they get appropriately and and towards care? So if I had a magic wand, first of all, I would follow you and Robin and make (laughs) So that's magic wand. Number one, I would get rid of arbitration agreements immediately. Yeah. I think those are the most ridiculous things. Uh, And the fact that Florida has embraced them, other states have not embraced them the same way we have. It's very difficult to overcome an arbitration agreement to the point that I had a case where a woman signed on behalf of her mom. She wasn't power of attorney. Mom was fine. Mom was with it. She just signed it because mom was in the other room. She was whatever. And they upheld that. Wow. Like she didn't have the authority to do that. And they said, oh, you're acting as an agent because- a lot of judges, again, are overburdened in our system and they see it as a way, one less case they have to deal with, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's unfortunate. So I would get rid of those. Um, what else would I do? I would make financial, uh, you know, visibility of what they're making. I, if, if there was some kind of audited financial statement requirement, yeah, you know, I think that would really help because if they're saying what they're saying is true, they should want that, right? Yeah. If they are having trouble 
show us and, and, and Congress will hopefully step up to the plate and give you more Medicare funding. Mm-hmm. What well, should be the case. The reason why I suspect that they're not doing that is because they don't need any more money. And in fact, they're in this perfect world where people think that they're not well off, but they are. They get the best of both worlds. So some type of, uh, you know, visibility on their financials um, and ownership as well, um, mm-hmm. you know, and not just the stuff that we get that's very, you know, nursing home, Opco, LLC, Florida owns this facility. What is that? Who really is owning this? What related parties are there? Not not just one party that, oh, we pay a little bit of money to them, like really showing these connections. And, and it could be done. It's very conceivable that that could be done. Um, I think those three things would be my first three choices to make. I think that that would make a, have a profound effect on the quality of care. Um, but I, I honestly do think that, again, I feel for the people I feel for the most are the staff. I think they don't get paid enough for what they do. Um, I would like to see, you know, increases in Medicare, uh, increases in their funding. Like, again, the money that we give to them, we know all three of us on this does not go directly to patient care. It goes to other things. If we can make that money go to the people that are actually doing the job, because it's difficult, it's difficult to deal with someone with, uh, you know, Alzheimer's dementia who, um, you know, it, it, it is on a feeding tube. Like that requires a lot of effort. And, and, and the men and women that do that are, are, are great generally. And they're, and they're making $12 an hour. Uh-huh. Well, I, I would somehow, if, if there was some type of minimum threshold of like X amount of Medicare funds has to go to staff payments, right? That's so traceable. That's so easy because we can yeah. say, here's the number. Here's say 75%. We this times 0.75 equals this number. Show us the pay stubs. Uh-huh. Not get complicated. That's not hard. And it would be really nice to see the people that are actually giving the care, you know, be compensated as such instead of what is happening now, where this money comes in from Medicare, it goes through some secret bank accounts, it gets switched all around, then we just don't know where it goes. It's just gone. Right. And then the owner buys a new house in, in the Hamptons. It's just yeah. not, it's not good. So that those those would be my changes, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're right in line with, you know, what you've been saying. We, those are some very specific things that certainly we've been advocating for. Um, We've definitely opposed uh, the use of the arbitration, the pre-dispute arbitration agreements. Um, That's been a long time policy um, area of ours and the audited cost reporting. um, Think that that needs to definitely um, be implemented. It's something we've been advocating for as well that, greater transparency and ownership and uh, the what we're calling the medical loss ratios where you're you're you know you're required to put a certain percentage of your revenue towards um, towards the cost of care and we have seen uh, three states have done that um, within the last year um, how it's being implemented is you know something that we're you know we're uh, needing to follow a little bit more closely and and are are watching but um, there's some glitches in some of those but but those we all, we agree with you would make a huge difference. And, and one thing that I kind of forgot to mention is another thing I do is I do whistleblower cases, key tams, uh, uh-huh. and that is a whole different animal. You start seeing what's going on on the facility wide level because I can't see that on an individual case. I I, I really can't talk too much about them because they're all under seal, they're sure. all confidential. Uh, but the things I've seen about the way that they will find ways to make money by defrauding the taxpayer is shocking. It's just absolutely shocking. What they've done with COVID, with the the COVID waivers, I can't go into it, Mm 
But while everyone was saying, oh, the nursing industry is so bad off, so many people took advantage of that huh. in the worst ways. It, it's unbelievable what, what we've already seen. And it, and it keeps coming. We have a number of these. It's just, it, it's, it's infuriating. It is heartbreaking. And, mm-hmm. and, and you see, here's the thing that really blows my mind is you see news articles on these folks. It's known that they're doing this. This is not something that like is an unknown thing to the world. They exist. People have already looked into this and just no one cares or no one could do anything. I think is the better way to phrase it. Uh-huh. And, and we spoke with an AUSA about this and we were like, is one, I would say my most egregious case, this person, well, I don't want to say where it is or what's happening, but this person owns a bunch of facilities. Okay. And we asked like, why don't they get shut down? You know, you know this, like you're not even shocked by what we're saying. Why are they still doing this? And the answer is, who's going to who's going to take all those people who replaces that facility? Right. So if there's 80 facilities and this guy gets wiped out, imagine 100 beds. You've got 8000 people now. What who's dealing with that? Wow. So on, on a on a state and federal level, that's a huge issue, too, is that if you make these rules so stringent and people catch them, what do you do? Uh-huh. You can't take over those 8,000 residents, right? So someone else has to buy. Well, who's going to buy it? If it, you know, so that's what's, that was a really shocking moment for me of kind of this idea of we need systemic change. It's one case, is, it's the right thing to do. Right. It, it is a deterrence in the sense of we, we mess with their, you know, income and we threaten them. And, you know, every time we, we have a successful case, it gives them a reason to staff a little bit more to pay us less, right? But it is a systemic problem uh-huh. and it's not going to be solved by one lawsuit. But, you know, I don't know. I, I just I, I found that to be shocking. Yeah. Well, definitely. I think we've seen we need an overhaul in the system. It's something we've been working all towards for a very long time, you know, because we shouldn't get to the place where we have the egregious case, cases, you know, and, and frankly, as you know, was mentioned before, people deserve more um, in terms of quality care and quality of life um, at all at all levels. So, you know, I, I think that that's really, you know, the focus of what we, we've been working, we've been working towards as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, we've been talking about today, we, we've seen um, not only in proposals that uh, legislative proposals, you know, federally that we've been supporting, administratively that we've been supporting. Um, and I think a lot of them even were validated in the recent report that came out from the National Academy of, of Science, Engineering and Medicine, uh, looking at an overhaul, the need for overhaul of the, of the long-term care system. So I think there are a lot of things we need to be working for um, and working towards in the future in order to achieve better care for people. Agreed. Agreed. Why well, you guys do that? Honestly, it's, it's sad because we sometimes feel like an Island over here Yeah, <laughs> doing. and it's just really refreshing to speak with people that are so knowledgeable about this stuff and actively pursuing it from a different angle too, which is nice. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for what you guys do and what your group does. Well, the same for what you and, and your partners are doing and uh, really appreciate you being our guest on the podcast today and talking about these issues with us. Uh, look forward to staying in touch with you and continuing to work on these issues. I think we're all moving in the same direction. So um, uh, all working to achieve better care for people who, who need it. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, you both be well. Let's keep fighting the good fight. And yeah, keep in touch. Thanks keep so much. Wonderful work.
So that is our episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care today. Thanks so much for joining us um, and visit our website at www.theconsumervoice.org for more information on the issues that we've been talking about today. So thank you so much. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can share your story with us, subscribe to the podcast, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.